the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. We're studying the Gospel of John. I'll speak up. Sorry. Um, we're in the middle of the 12th chapter, and the 12th chapter of John starts with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, we are going to spend the rest of the book of John talking about the final week of Jesus' life. Uh, it's a little bit unclear from the text if we're still on Palm Sunday or if we've transitioned into Monday. It's not real clear. doesn't really matter. Uh, I was not here last week because I was taking care of things related to Natalie uh, David, thank you for teaching last week, and um, if I'm not here, you now know why. Um, two weeks ago, I taught you, as Jesus addressed the crowd that followed him to the temple from Palm Sunday, we get this amazing verse in verse 28, and a voice came from heaven where God speaks and says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again, meaning the, the commitment and the sacrifice that Jesus is doing. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel had spoken to him. I gave you two life lessons I want to use as a transition. The first one is the lost are incapable of hearing God speak or seeing his work unless he calls them to himself. So God speaks the audible voice of God and the non-believers stand around and go, wow, I didn't know it was going to thunder. They're just incapable of hearing God's word. The insight for believers is for believers who are bombarded with so much noise from the world, we frequently mistake God speaking to us as something else. So some believers in him hear a voice coming down from heaven. Their brains can't contemplate God is speaking and they say, huh, I think I just heard angels making noise. Great lesson for us, non-believers, believers, we've got to be very, very uh, soft and sensitive when God speaks to us. With that transition, we get into verse 32 to start our text for today, and it, Jesus says, As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to signify what kind of death he was about to die. I've highlighted here the fact that he draws people to himself. That's a really important point for us, and I want to dive into two little areas. The first one is the issue of the attractiveness of Christ. Most people would say the attractiveness of Christ is because of who he was, right? Sermon on the Mount, all the parables, all the wisdom. That's not it. The attractiveness of Christ is what he did. And the greatest mistake that the Christian church has made in the 20th century and the 21st century is underemphasizing that fact. The churches that grow the most are the churches that are built around the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. The churches that are dead in Europe, the churches that are dead in South America, the churches that are dead in North America, are those churches that instead focus on who he was, the wisdom that he had, the insight that he had. And it's just a, a, a church of social justice or a church of liturgy that's just form. It doesn't appreciate the truth and the multiple ramifications in every aspect of life of the cross of Christ. It's interesting, though, on the attraction of Christ, how profound it is. 
in every single woman I have encountered since my teenage years. Ask her what kind of man she wants as a boyfriend. Ask her what kind of man she wants as a husband. The description you get is a description of Jesus Christ. You pick all the adjectives you want. The person she is describing is the person that lived out the life that Jesus Christ lived. It's still true today. It's why being a husband is so hard. It's a hard standard to keep up with. Uh, but the insight is, as a, uh, a man, Jesus set a standard that, that we certainly need to study and emulate, but never, ever, ever put it above the sacrifice of the cross. Life lesson, because Christ is the attraction when we present the gospel of him to others, we do not have to be the attraction. This is a huge point because if I talk to people about why they don't witness, they don't think they're the attraction. They don't think they can attract or explain to anybody. They say, oh, I stutter. Oh, I haven't had enough schooling. Oh, I've skipped too much time in church or Bible study. You know, they got a litany of excuses that are all saying, I'm not attractive enough to draw somebody to Christ through me. Folks, that has never been the standard. The standard is he is the attraction. He is the magnet. We just have to get people close enough to the magnet so the magnet can draw them closer to him. Our job is to bring people close to the magnetism of our Savior. Next verse, 34. The crowd replied to him, we've heard from Scripture the Messiah will remain, or you could say live, forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Let me stop for just a minute right here. What you probably don't understand back then, and you probably don't understand today, is that the Jews reading the Old Testament have never been able to reconcile what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Moses and the Psalms say about the Messiah. Because in one thread, the Messiah, as I've just got up here on the first sentence, will be the king forever. He'll rule in Jerusalem. There will be a kingship on David's throne. It will last forever. And they see that and they say, that's the Messiah we want. Psalm 119, Isaiah 52 and 53, a whole bunch of other passages talk about the suffering Messiah that's going to be tortured and killed because of who he is. In Jesus' day, they thought that was two people. Today, they think that's two different people. They are blind to see the reality that is the person of Jesus Christ that lived years ago and the same person of Jesus Christ that's coming again in the second coming. It's the same person. Uh, Jewish thought has got a disconnect there. But here, they're commenting on, you don't look like you're going to live forever. How's our Messiah going to live forever through you, fallen human guy, they're thinking. And Jesus starts talking about the Son of Man. Now, in prior lessons, I showed you Daniel 7, 13 and 14. That's where this comes from. This idea of a Son of Man is an idiom of Hebrew and Aramaic that's a little hard to get our brain around, but let me give you an, an idea. If I want to describe some young fella that's filthy rich, I could describe him as a son of wealth, and you'd know instantaneously what I'm talking about. Rich guy, I just call him a son or a picture of wealth, whether he inherited it or not. If I want to describe somebody of privilege, they just got a break break in school, break in politics, break in whatever, I say a son of privilege. You're like, yeah, I know exactly what that means. Son of man means the exact same thing. It's identifying 
the direct object, man, and it just puts the son up to say this is a picture. He's a picture of man. It's an idea to say to us, he's not some kind of divine spirit walking around pretending to be a human. He's 100% human while being 100% God. The phrase in Daniel describes that like a son of man, just like a normal guy, and then describes divinity. He's given authority, glory, sovereign power. The entire world, all nations and people worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. So in Daniel, it's describing God like a son of man, like, like a real human being. So in Jesus' concept or in the concept of Jesus' day, what does that mean? Jesus loved the term because although 100% human, he was pre-existent. Back in John chapter 3, I taught you the story of Nicodemus. And if you go back and study John 3, you'll see this reference that I taught you back a couple of months ago when he was describing Jesus to himself, to Nicodemus, described himself as being around before Abraham existed. And it was pre-existent. It's unlike all of us, he was with God in heaven from eternity past. He was to suffer humiliation and death, just like all of us get humiliated, just like all of us get sick, just like all of us die. Jesus was going to go through those human physical uh, frailties, and he's going to be involved in the final judgment. We see that multiple times in John when he refers to the Son of Man. We see it here. Uh, we see it in the reference to Daniel chapter 7. He's, he's God. He's going to judge everybody. That's how Daniel 7 ends. That's the theme that Jesus keeps working back in. Now, let me apply that because that's just a bunch of heady theology. Let me bring it down to earth. Our world is eager to embrace Jesus as a wise teacher, but Jesus doesn't give us the option of stopping there. I talk to any Jewish lawyer buddy. None of them say Jesus is a historical fiction like Robin Hood. None of them. I talked to a Muslim lawyer buddy. None of them say Jesus is like a fictional TV character. I talked to anybody anywhere on the planet. I've yet to meet somebody sane that has studies history. They would say Jesus was other than a real man who lived at a real point in time and has influenced a whole lot of people but they stop at wise man. The problem with that is that it's inconsistent with anything Jesus said or did. For Jesus to say, like he's done here, that he is God, and it's going to get real blatant here in a minute. Uh, if he's not God, he's a liar or delusional. You cannot attribute somebody to be a wise man if they are a delusional, pathological liar. Can't have it. So Jesus is who he says he was and is much more than a wise man, or you got to chalk him up as delusional, or you got to chalk him up as a pathological liar in the historical record. There you go. Jesus does not give us the option of stopping there. That's weird to hear yourself in the background. There you go. Good to have you back, David. <laughs> See, I love David so much because even in class, he needs more of me. <laughs> I love that kind of person. Okay, verse 35. Jesus answered, the light will be with you only a little longer. 
walk while you have the light so the darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going while you have the light. Believe in the light so you may become sons of light. Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. Let me give you some insight what it's talking about. Light associates Jesus with the Father. There are five different psalms that say God is light. There are a dozen different passages starting from Genesis chapter 1 through the end of Malachi that say God is light. So the essence of God being light is significant because light is a thing. It's tangible. It's not just something that exists. If we studied it scientifically, it's got energy. It's got uh, all kinds of movement. Light is, is very tangible. So when Jesus associates through light with the Father and he says, I am light, he's drawn himself equal to the Father. Second, Jesus illuminates the Father. Jesus says here, Jesus says in other passages, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And because no one has seen the Father, if we want to know what God the Father is like, you just study Jesus. Character, temperament, patience, grace, forgiveness, everything about him. You see Jesus, you see God the Father. Next point, Jesus is the antithesis of darkness. Darkness means Jesus is not around. If Jesus is around because he's light, there is going to be an absence of darkness, the antithesis of darkness. Let me give you a life lesson I think we can all apply. Because darkness is merely the absence of light. When we find our place in a place of darkness, we have to find ways to let his light illumine us. Now, every time I go through a crisis, I get reminded of this. Our fallen human nature takes our brain to bad places. Our brain fears. Our brain assumes the worst. Our brain applies the worst motives to other people. Our brain applies the worst uh, scenarios to the fact whatever we find ourselves living in. Our brain, as, as deep as we are as committed Christians, goes to a place where God does not take care of us and bad things happen. And it scares us, and it makes us cry, and it makes us fearful, and it just keeps us praying and praying and praying. And it's like this aspect of sin nature, as long as we're here on this planet, keeps us in a place of darkness. So how do you get light when something goes bad, when you get a diagnosis of a serious health problem that might kill you? When you've got a serious relationship problem, when you've got a serious vocational problem, when you've got a serious economic problem, whatever the problem is, your brain goes to bad, bad places. How do you bring light into that situation? I shared it before. I'll share it again. For me, it's not just God's word. It's the Psalms. Other than what I'm going to teach you, I got to confess for the last nine weeks of limping through life with my wife, I can't read anything else in my Bible except the Psalms. They're like a life preserver. Now, there's some that just circumstantially don't necessarily apply as deeply, but the vast majority of the Psalms are David or one of the other psalmists in a place of fear, of grief, of humiliation, of dishonor, 
any negative emotion you can think of, there are multiple psalms that tackle that. And they all respond the same way. They put it into context of God the Father. They put it in the context of the truth of his promises. They put it in the context of the coming Messiah. They put it in a way that make the psalm a life preserver. Light point number two, Christian brothers and sisters. The worst thing you can do in a moment of crisis is self-isolate. And your sinful nature, your fallen brain that wants to take you to a place of, of darkness also wants you to self-isolate. It's why the symptom of depression and anxiety is self-isolation. Self-isolation is not just being an introvert. Even introverts like limited social interaction. Total separation is a sign of depression, which is an illness, or severe anxiety, which is an illness. And it's why when your, your brain wants to go that way or your body wants to go that way, you've got to be social. You've got to reach out. You've got to talk. You've got to do all kinds of things to get Christian brothers and sisters to fellowship with you, interact with you, encourage you. And you've got to fight the urge to be by yourself. The last point I will make here is the way God created us to deal with absence of light is to talk. Women are much better than this than men, but guys have got to talk. If you've got a fear, you've got to verbalize it or your brain locks it into a little place called the amygdala that just gets stuck in the mud in fear. Uh, if you're a guy and you've got severe anxiety, you've got some kind of fear going on, you've got depression or anything else going on, you got to talk or your brain sticks it in quicksand. And unless you articulate it to another human being, you cannot be healthy. So you get light by talking gets the darkness out of your mind. It's the reason why talk therapy works. It's the reason why your best friend is your best friend. Because when you talk to somebody, it gets darkness out of your mind. So whether it's the Psalms, whether it's fellowship with another brother or sister, whether it is talking about what is driving you crazy and scaring you or fearful, making you fearful, those three things practically are how we have to find ways to let his light illumine us. It goes without saying that these things don't have bookends of prayer around them. I've started every single day for the better part of nine weeks on my knees in front of Natalie's chair that sits next to our bed, praying for where she is and praying for her healing and praying for her treatment, praying for everything going on. And I was kind of reminded of an interview I saw with uh, Mother Teresa before she died a long time ago. The most profound comment on prayer I've ever heard. The interview was, Mother Teresa, what do you do when you pray? How do you pray? And she says, I'm normally quiet and I listen. <laughs> and the interviewer said, and how about God? And she said, he's the same way. <laughs> Profound insight on a different methodology of how we pray, which is we use a lot of words and we tell God what we want. I try to be really careful in my prayers, particularly in front of y'all, about telling God what you want. I got to confess, I'm telling God what I want with my wife. I just can't get around it. But I always pray his will. I always pray for his guidance. I always pray for his patience and his understanding for forgiveness for my failures. But it's bookended in prayer. And a lot of times when I find myself on my knees in Natalie's prayer chair praying, 
just silence. I run out of words. I just want answers. So if you find yourself in silence, remember Mother Teresa. Help is a God-honoring prayer. Help, please, is a God-honoring prayer. Verse 35, Jesus answered, the light will only be with you a little while, a little longer. I talked to you earlier. I highlighted the one who walks and the one who believes. Believe in the light and so that you may become the sons of light. Let me give you some insight on the same verse, different highlight. The first one is walking in the light. What does it mean to walk in the light? This is pretty obvious. We've talked about it before when I talked to the light. It means you're praying. When things are going great, I don't pray like I'm praying right now because that's part of my fallen nature. Everything's great with God, so I don't need to start my day in my wife's chair on my knees in prayer. In crisis mode, we pray like crazy. It means time in our Bible. I'm in the Psalms every day. I'm usually in my Bible every day in my quiet time or working on a lesson for you guys. But it's easy not to walk in the light by not being there. Walking in the light means what I do matters. It means my language matters. My private time matters. What I read and watch matters. It means the God who always has eyes on me is looking for my obedience to his word. So if I want God's blessing, I got to be a good child of God. And it's not like I'm, I'm saying if I do these good things, I get blessing. Do not misunderstand me. I'm saying I love my heavenly father. I love my savior so much. I want to be in his will. I want to have his smile. I want to have his touch. I want to have his guidance. He'll bless me anyway he blesses me. I'm not treating him like a genie in the bottle, gimme, gimme, gimme. I'm saying just like I want my earthly mom and dad to smile on me and appreciate what I'm doing. Same thing with God. Believe in the light. This is the hard one because our sin nature, as I just said a minute ago, wants to pull us into fear, wants to pull us into stuff we're scared about. If I believe in the light, it means I know he's going to take care of me. Let me tell you the only way I have ever discovered that works. Believe in the light for today. If you try to believe in the light for tomorrow, Satan will own your mind. Our sin nature is impossible. It's like saying in the midst of, of uh, chemotherapy, right? I believe I'm going to be 100% healthy next year, right? As you're losing your hair, that's hard to contemplate, right? You can't contemplate next year. But if I contemplate today, I'm only going to worry about today till the sun goes down and I close my eyes and go to sleep. I have no problem believing in the light because it's today. I know what I'm doing today. I know what's going to happen to me today by and large. I know my schedule. I know when my kids and I are going to have meals. I know when I got to go do certain things. And I know when I'm going to be praying. I know when I'm going to be in my quiet time. I know when I'm going to be in the Psalms. Today's okay. I can do today. I can't do tomorrow. So if you want to believe in the light, narrow your focus and focus on today. Life lesson. When we walk in the light and believe in the light, God promises we'll become sons of light. I highlighted that at the end of that passage. What that means is not that we become little versions of Billy Graham. What that means is we become reflective of him. That means I can be distraught. I can be crying. 
I can be fearful. I can be all kinds of bad things. But if I can reflect him to my kids, worried about their mom, I'm doing what God wants me to do. If I can do it in my law firm, where people wonder, is Chris okay? And they see, see me doing what I'm supposed to be doing. They hear my voice. They hear my words. They see my actions. They see me in prayer in my office or reading my Bible. I'm a, a reflection of his greater light. See, all it requires is I be in public around other people. And it requires that I just do what he tells me to do. I don't have to preach. I don't have to teach. I don't have to be semin seminarily theological. I just got to be Chris. And that means whatever I walk through life, I just want to be a reflection of him. That's sons of light. If I walk in the light and if I believe in the light. Verse 37, even though he had performed many signs in their presence, they did not believe him. But this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, The Lord, uh, Lord who has believed our message and who has the arm of the Lord uh, has been revealed to. Now, this is a neat little verse because it starts by commenting. They saw the signs. They saw the cripple walking. They saw the lepers with no more leprosy sores. They saw the person that didn't know how to speak for their entire life speaking. They saw the deaf man hearing for the first time. They saw dead people like Lazarus walking around laughing and telling jokes and talking about what it's like to die and come back again. And they still didn't believe. Our life lesson is that unbelief is unbelievable. You and I have friends. You and I have family members, and we don't understand why they don't believe. We've tried. We've brought them to church sometimes. We take them all kinds of places, and they don't unbelieve. They don't believe. If you remember that unbelief is unbelievable, it means you do not get dismayed. Because they are blind, and dead men do not listen. Dead men and women do not answer. Dead men and women do not get up and interact with other people until there is new life. And I've taught you before in scripture, in John, God has to give them life and draw them to him. And that second life, that rebirth is what is salvation, what is the maturity of life as believers. So if you see somebody dead spiritually, just smile that we still have to do what we're supposed to do, but God's got to call them. We're still supposed to love them. We're still supposed to be Christ to them. But their unbelief is just going to be unbelievable to us for as long as we're around. Second point, when God hardens hearts, we will never understand, but our commission never changes. The reality of scripture from the book of Exodus when it describes Pharaoh is God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We see it again in the judges. We see it again in the monarchy. We see it again in the kings. We see it again in the prophets. Multiple times, scripture says God hardened their hearts. At one point, God hardened the hearts of all of Israel. All of them, they were so bad, and then shipped them off into captivity twice. We will never understand when or why God hardens a heart but the fact God does it does not mean we say, well, good riddance. There's one more for hell. Time to go focus on somebody else. The Great Commission does not allow us to do that. We still have to witness. One of my two best friends in high school pastored in St. Louis for a decade, got an MDiv from one of the nation's best seminaries. 
Today he is as lost as a goose. Does not believe in the atonement, does not believe in the crucifixion, does not believe in resurrection. He worships a God of his own creation that is not the God of the Bible. It breaks my heart. But most people from his prior world have just cut him off. Don't talk to him, don't interact with him, no social media. They're just like, good riddance, enjoy hell, buddy. I can't do that. I try to interact with him and he gives me more of this theology stuff that he made up. I talked to him about scripture. I, it's like arguing with the world's greatest agnostic. Uh, the Great Commission tells me I cannot abandon my brother. So it feels like walking into a brick wall over and over and over again. But that's what happens when you got a hardened heart. Until God calls me home because God put this guy in my life, I believe the Great Commission is i got to continue to share with him because I don't know when that hardened heart might, if ever, change. And I can't go into heaven thinking I, like everybody else, totally abandoned this buddy that I grew up with. Going to church, going to youth camp, praying with, talking about seminary. To me, there's an investment there. Now, one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible, you probably just skip right over if you're reading John chapter 12. Verse 41, I just gave you two quotes from Isaiah. Jesus said, or John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his, Christ's glory, and spoke about him. The reason I said this is one of the greatest verses in Scripture is because of what Isaiah says about this and what John, writing after this event, looks back into history and says, Isaiah saw my Savior. Isaiah chapter 6. The book starts with Isaiah being taken into the presence of Yahweh. And he starts in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, in the year King Uzziah died, we know exactly which year that is, I saw Yahweh, I saw the Lord, seated on a high and lofty throne and his robe filled the temple. Isaiah saw Yahweh. That's all you know in Isaiah. You jump to John, John connects the dots. Isaiah saw Jesus. Centuries before Bethlehem, centuries before Nazareth, centuries before Palm Sunday, the man standing in front of John, he now knows with 2020 hindsight, Isaiah saw the same guy. He also talked about angels worshiping him, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The glory fills the whole earth. There is no doubt from Isaiah he saw the creator of the universe. He saw Yahweh God. Who did he see? Jesus pre-incarnate. Remember, Scripture says no one has seen God the Father. That includes Isaiah. So if Isaiah sees God, who's he seeing? Jesus. No one's seeing the Holy Spirit. No one's seeing God the Father. The only person left is Jesus. So it's really simple. That is the reason I taught you guys for two years the Scarlet Thread. Because if I say that, most people are like, eh, Maybe. If I teach it to you the way I did for those of y'all that were here two years ago, I did Genesis through Malachi over two years and I showed you Jesus every single time he's mentioned. You want the CDs? I'll make you a copy of them. I haven't made them for the whole class yet, but if you never heard it, I'll get them to you. But the scarlet thread was intended to take this passage and explode it to the entire Old Testament. And that's why it's so critical to see not just the Old Testament is before Jesus, 
and the New Testament is after Jesus, we got to see Genesis through Revelation is 100% about Jesus Christ. It's intended from start to finish, and if you have any other view of the Bible, you got a wrong view of God, you got a wrong view of your Bible. Verse 42, Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers. Because the Pharisees, they did not confess him, so they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Let me give you two insights, because here we've got a comment on those that did believe, and then we've got a comment on persecution. Let me dive down just a little bit. Secret believers. In our world, North America, USA, there are some. In the rest of the world, there's a shocking number that if you lived in those cultures, you would be blessed and amazed at the number of secret Christians. If you travel to the Middle East, a bunch of secret Christians. You travel to parts of China, millions of secret Christians. You travel to parts of the Indian continent, or you travel to South America, there's cultures where you got to be a secret Christian. I've got friends doing church in bombed-out Damascus this morning. In Damascus, it's dinner time right now, but while we were sleeping, they were having church. And every week, church is in a different location because if they go back to the same place, they're at risk of arrest and imprisonment. So you got to have a perspective of what's going on in the rest of the world because in our cushy North American USA Christianity, we forget that there's Christians in need of our prayer because if they go public... They go to jail and they might die. Or in some of their families, they'll do an honor killing and take them out at the dinner table. So you've got to be very, very prayerful of Christians who God draws to him in a place where the culture abhors and illegal, uh, illegal life of the right word makes illegal Christianity. Point number two, the cost of discipleship. The reason I read as much as I can soak up about other cultures like Muslim cultures Buddhist cultures, whatever cultures are that are hostile to Christianity. The reason my favorite biographies are the great men of God from old is because I see the cost of discipleship play out. The cost of discipleship plays out where you lose your job because of your faith, where you lose your family because of your faith, where you lose your life because of your faith. As horrific as it is, I love reading stories of the Christian martyrs because it reminds me how much they're willing to sacrifice to have a Bible in their lap and how much I take mine for granted. The Christian martyrs remind me of how easy my life is, where I think the cost of discipleship is someone doesn't want to eat lunch with me. The cost of discipleship is somebody doesn't return my text messages. The cost of discipleship is somebody's mad at me because I said the name Jesus. Folks, that's not the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship is when what you treasure the most is at risk. So you got to have an appreciation for the cost of discipleship because in our super country world, we just frequently forget it. Verse 44, as we wind down the chapter, Jesus cries out, The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me, God the Father. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me, God the Father. I have come as a light into the world. He picks up that theme again. So everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him. He's saying, I don't judge him right now. For I did not come to judge the world right now, but to save the world. I added the right now because if you read scripture, later he's doing a bunch of judging. 
That time is not here. He hadn't come yet for that. We've not been raptured into heaven. Right now he came to save. Let me give you some insight. Insight number one, Jesus is one with the Father. To believe in one is to believe in the other. So you wonder about God the Father, you want to please God the Father, Jesus Christ, that's the gateway. Number two, he's the embodiment of truth. To believe in divine truth is to believe in the person of Jesus Christ. You can't say he's just a good man. You can't say he's just a wise man. He is God. we got to recognize that. Point number three, the, G, the reason Jesus was sent was to write eternal life by grace alone through faith alone. Critical, critical point of history. Every single theological belief that existed prior to Jesus Christ said, you do X, Y, and Z, you get to go to heaven. After Jesus Christ, every single belief system that has ever existed says you want to live in paradise, you want to live in heaven, you want to live in the good place, you do X, Y, and Z. The only point in the pivot of history that is said, it is 100% about grace, which you do not deserve. It is 100% about mercy, preventing you from getting what you do deserve based on faith in a man who is God that laid down his life for us. We can't work our way into heaven. Coming to church doesn't do it. Reading our Bible doesn't do it. Being good people doesn't do it. Good husbands, wives, parents, whatever it is, doesn't do it. Those things are God honoring. Don't get me wrong. God's got a plan. You got to do it right if you want to be honoring him. But that doesn't get our salvation. It's grace alone, faith alone. Last point, we'll end on this verse. The one who rejects me and doesn't accept my saying has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given a command as to what I should say and what I should speak. I know that his command is eternal life, so the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. You want the Reader's Digest version of what I just read? The Reader's Digest version is, I'm telling you the truth. That's the Reader's Digest version. Real simple. I am truth. I am speaking the truth. Whole bunch of words in Hebrew and Aramaic when said in Greek and translated. He's saying, I'm speaking the truth. Application. The elevation of personal opinion today as a new standard of what is truth and the demise of true truth is the single greatest evidence the end times are drawing closer. When what someone personally believes and says, I believe this to be true, and a whole bunch of other people want to salute it, is a sign of not truth, but of the end times. When someone says, I'm going to disregard true truth and put a false label on it, it is a sign of the end times. We've got to be very, very careful. We are a people of truth. If it's opinion, we acknowledge it as opinion. But if it's truth, we acknowledge the truth and we don't combine them together. And if someone speaks something of truth, we avoid demonizing them because of a viewpoint, a lifestyle, a history of whatever it is. If somebody speaks truth, we've got to recognize it as truth no matter who speaks it. Can sinners speak truth? You've got to recognize it as yes. They can say two plus two equals four. They can say the grass is green, the sky is blue. They can say all kinds of things despite being decadent, pagan, awful sinners, 
even sinners can speak truth. So we don't confuse labels. We don't confuse what somebody looks like or sounds like with truth. We look at truth based on objective, true truth, which starts with, starts with God's standard. All right, let me wrap up with this. Verse 36, I skipped over it. I flew by it on purpose. Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. He did not issue an altar call. He did not threaten them with hell. He did not criticize their lifestyle. He did not talk about extraneous things, which is how good the Passover meal is going to be in a couple of days. He said what he had to say, and he moved on. There is a profound, profound life lesson here for all of us. Although God reveals both himself and true truth to everyone on the planet with unfathomable patience, there comes a time for everyone who refuses to listen where God says, thy will be done. To the lost, he stops talking. Don't lose sight of the fact that the same thing is true for us as believers. If God is telling you to give up something that you're doing that's not honoring to him and you just keep going la, 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 God's going to stop saying it and consequences will follow. If God is saying this relationship is wrong, you better listen or he's going to stop talking and consequences are going to follow. If God says this thing you're in is wrong, we got a listener who's going to stop talking and bad consequences follow. As Christian believers, the biggest problem we have is complacency because of the patience of God. We do things, we say things, we act certain ways, we're in certain relationships, we partake in certain things, and we think there's no consequences today. God's okay with it. We can even delude ourselves into praying over what's going on that we know is wrong. And when God says with sin in our lives, thy will be done, it is as catastrophic as the story in scripture that we call the prodigal son. It's a story of total separation where God says, thy will be done. You want that action, you want that habit, you want that lifestyle, you want that relationship, you want that job, whatever it may be that's bad, not in God's will. If God's saying, whispering, stop it, pull out, get help, get whatever you need, and you just keep playing in that playground, you're tempting the patience of God where he looks at you and says, I love you, but thy will be done. I've seen it play out with hundreds of buddies. I've seen it play out in thousands of marriages in all the classes I've taught since I was in my 20s. People in our sin nature just keep getting pulled back in. It's something I have to watch on a daily basis in my life. It's the reason I teach it to you guys. We've all got to watch it. If you're struggling with something, it's a struggle you cannot do on your own. Talk to somebody. Talk to a buddy. Talk to a professional. It takes somebody to help you get out when your car is stuck in the mud. Why do you think your life is any different? Sometimes you need somebody else to help pull you out and get you back where you need to be. So, 
Challenge, praise, prayer. We all got need help. Let's help each other. Next week, probably my favorite story in the entire Bible. Jesus is going to wash some stinky feet. I called it when God kneels down. You've heard the story. You've heard sermons on it. You read it. You know a whole bunch of stuff about it. God willing, unless I'm dealing with some personal issues, I'll be here next week. And if I'm here next week, I'll teach you some stuff you've never heard before. Come back and join me next week. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come together and love on each other as very hurt people, very needy people for you and our other brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for each other here. We pray for those that are struggling with things that only they and you know about. We pray for people that are struggling with illness and physical issues. We pray for people that are just in desperate need of your touch and your comfort. We are all hurting We are all fallen, we are all broken, and we are in desperate need of your presence and the illumination, the light that it gives. Please shine it on us this week through our prayer time, through our time in the Psalms or any other aspect of Scripture, through our time with other brothers and sisters, and hear and honor our prayers of today, especially those from my precious family and my beautiful wife. Lead us and guide us as your will is done and as you give us your peace and your comfort. We ask these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. See you all next week. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.